What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. June 2010, Cumbria, a predominantly rural county in Northwest England, home to the peaceful community of Whitehaven. It was about to be shattered by the murderous rampage of one man. This perfectly ordinary 52-year-old taxi driver had suddenly taken it into his head to shoot everybody in the area. Over the course of a single day, Derek Bird would kill 12 people and injure 11 more. He picked people off who were just going about their their day-to-day lives and it seemed to make absolutely no sense whatsoever. That was the worst day of my life. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. This callous killer only stopped when he ran out of ammunition and as police were closing in, he turned the gun on himself. We have a man who had committed no substantial crime in his life, who in one moment transformed himself into a spree serial killer. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Derek Bird. Derek and his twin brother were born on November 27, 1957, in Ennerdale Bridge, a village a few miles outside the coastal town of Whitehaven. The birds appeared to be an ordinary family. The twins had an older brother, and their father worked for the nearby local council. Derek and his twin brother David went to school in Whitehaven. Despite being slightly older by five minutes, Derek always seemed to be in the shadow of his younger brother David. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel talks more on their upbringing. It's always assumed, isn't it, that twins will adore each other. You know, there are many twins that are like that, but in this particular case, I don't think they were. I think they were rather isolated from one another. David was probably the more likable one, Derek the quieter one. He was kind of a bit of a loner. As the brothers grew up, the differences between them became more apparent. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that for twins, the two didn't have much in common. David was his twin brother, but that was where any resemblance ended, I think. Um, David was better at sports. He was on the rugby team at school. Derek wasn't a particularly athletic child. David was cleverer, he was more handsome, he was more successful. And many people have described Derek as living in David's shadow. And this isn't anything unusual. Many siblings are outshone by by others in their family, but they they don't don't carry the the kind of rage and the kind of resentments that Derek Bird did, I think, because that was what his personality was. He really did catastrophize this relationship with his brother, and he blamed him for so many things. One thing the twins did share was their father's passion for hunting. And just before their 17th birthday, Derek got his shotgun license. 
Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber says he had a real love for firearms. His father was involved in guns. In small towns in the countryside of England, owning weapons, is, especially a shotgun uh, for hunting, um, is not unusual. Derek Bird's passion for guns continued into adulthood. After graduating from school, he found work at Sellafield Nuclear Power Station. Just before he started his new job, he started dating a woman who was five years younger than him. She was somebody he met at school and she was several years below him. So I think for, for him, this was important because he was the dominant figure in the relationship. He was that bit older. They never got married. They did live together. Things seemed to be going well for the couple. They moved in together in 1978 and had their first child in 1982. But in 1990, Derek Bird lost his job at the nuclear plant after he was caught stealing wood. He received a six-month suspended sentence. Then in 1994, his partner left him. It's pretty clear from early on, she senses something is slightly off about Derek Bird. She never marries him. She leaves him before the birth of their second child. So this was his first relationship. This was a relationship that failed. This was another thing, I think, to add to his collection of grievances, of things that other people have done to him. So this is just adding to his pity, essentially. And if there was a telling moment in Derek Bird's emergence into adulthood, it was the failure of that relationship. A few months later, Bird began dating again. Derek Bird formed a relationship with another woman. They never lived together. Bird at that point was still, you know, employed in various odd jobs. Another year passes and Bird becomes a taxi driver. He finally had a stable job again. His love life though, not so stable. His relationship with his latest partner was increasingly volatile. Now they're together for some years. It's alleged that there was some domestic abuse. The extraordinary nature of Bird's relationship is demonstrated by the fact that in January 1998, the police are called after she insists that he's headbutted her, but no charges are brought. In October 1998, Bird's life was turned upside down when his father died. Though he was still working as a taxi driver, Bird became his mother's caregiver, and he would visit her every day. The difficulties in his personal life spilled into his day job. And a year later, Bird was arrested for threatening to harm someone unless they gave him money. However, no charges were ever brought against him. Meanwhile, after six years, his girlfriend finally had had it and left him in 2000. She says that Bird became emotionally detached, wasn't sympathetic, wasn't compassionate. I don't think Bird was capable of compassion. I don't think he felt much in the way of anything for anybody. Life as a taxi driver was hard for the father of two, and Bird developed a bad reputation among his colleagues. Being a taxi driver in a fairly isolated seaside town in Cumbria was getting more difficult. More taxi drivers, fewer passengers. There was a good deal of rivalry on the Whitehaven cab rank, clearly, with some not particularly pleasant remarks, one driver to another. He's not a popular figure on the Whitehaven rank. Bird had a particularly hostile relationship with a young driver named Darren Rucastle. Edward Schoons is Darren's father. Darren, he had a few bust-ups with Bird, because Bird used to drive in front of the taxi 
My father was really struck there, and Bird was one of the worst for that. And one day he found this sour milk thrown all over his taxi, over the back seat of the taxi, and that upset him. And he had a good idea it was Bird that did it, because Bird had taken the fear off him. Sharon Moore, Darren's sister, recalls the relationship between her brother and Bird. I can't say a bad word about him because he was my brother. Definitely, definitely wasn't a bully. But most of these taxi drivers got, oh, I used to bully Derek and used to do this, he used to do that. It was tit for tat. They were as bad as each other. Over the next few years, the rivalry between the two drivers intensified. Darren Rucastle slashed Derek Bird's tires. There had been a number of incidents, but that was obviously the most severe. And it would have been expensive because new tires for a taxi are not a cheap thing to buy. There was the whole sense of it being relatively difficult to make a living. Derek Bird was isolated from other taxi drivers and in 2002 was involved in a fight outside a nightclub in Workington. His nose was broken, but he withdrew the charges against the other man. Five years later, at age 49, Bird was attacked while he was working. Derek Bird was assaulted by some passengers who'd made off without paying from his taxi. It was a serious assault. He had a laceration to the head. He had broken dentures. He had a chipped tooth. This was something that he took very, very personally. This is further fuel to the fire. His first girlfriend leaves him. His second girlfriend leaves him. The only good job he ever had at a nuclear plant, he loses because he engages in theft. He has his tires slashed by other taxi cab drivers. Fares who run out on him, assault him. One assault being serious enough that he was hospitalized. His life was just on a downward descent. Derek Bird was at a breaking point. He was bitter, angry and a family revelation would further fuel his resentment, pushing him over the edge, turning him into something monstrous. Cumbria, England, 2007. 49-year-old Derek Bird had been briefly hospitalized after being attacked by passengers in his taxi. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber says the incident left Bird anxious. He actually changed the nature of how he did his cab work. When he did his cab work, he became more cautious. He had nightmares. He obsessed about it as a re repetition compulsion. Now, those are all valid symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't doubt that he had it. What's odd is that the trauma is relatively minor compared to most things that cause PTSD. And what that makes me think is that before that assault occurred, because of the nature and stresses of his life, he was in a state of such fragility that his fabric just wasn't sufficient to deal with the next stress. Bird was a gun enthusiast and would regularly go on trips to Thailand and visit shooting ranges. He owned several guns, and in March 2007, he purchased a new 22 caliber rifle. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel delves into Bird's history with weapons. There's no doubt that he had a great interest in guns, which I think had been given to him by his father. Uh, he had a shotgun license for many years in 1974. He had a proper license for a 22 caliber rifle, complete with a silencer. He had a license to have quite a lot of ammunition. Shooting was very much a solitary pursuit, and Bird loved it. He had very little in common with his fellow taxi drivers in Whitehaven. 
So in February 2008, when his taxi was vandalized, he suspected one of the other drivers was behind it. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley has more on the ribbing among taxi drivers. There is often quite a bit of banter between taxi drivers, and, and sometimes this can turn quite nasty, especially when there are disputes over fares, whether somebody has picked up somebody else's passenger, because this is how these guys make their living. But for Derek Bird, he attaches an awful lot of significance to this because he has this permanent exclusion narrative. Everybody is out to get me. Everybody is against me. And I think this does add to that. Money was tight for Bird. It was worrying him and making him paranoid. When Derek Bird's father had died, there was an argument about the will and who was to get what in the will. Bird felt that his twin brother and the family solicitor were planning to reveal to the tax authorities who were examining Bird's affairs at that time that he had a secret bank account in which there was 60,000 pounds. He was convinced that the world, his brother, his solicitor, and every other taxi driver was against him. And then added on top of that, a little fuel that everyone was against him. Bird discovered that his father lent his twin brother David money before he died. Derek found out his father made uh, an unspoken secret loan to David. Even at the point where he's the person you know, taking over and being responsible for the welfare of his mother, David is getting the money, feeling disinherited and, and believing as he did that his, his brother and his, and his accountants were plotting against him to get him jailed for tax fraud were just too much for him. He was of the view that his brother and his solicitor had conspired against him. He felt very bitter about a 25,000 pound loan that his father had made to his twin brother back in 1998. So this is somebody who really does hang on to grudges. He collects them, he stores them away. He doesn't deal with those, those issues, with that anger. And it all boils and boils and boils away. He was a man who was rapidly going nowhere, was finding himself uh, alone. The frustration was simply too much for him. Alienated from everyone and indignant that his twin brother may have benefited from his father's death, Derek Bird had had enough. He came to a fateful decision. Unhinged and armed with his rifle, in the early hours of June 2nd, he drove to his brother's house in Lamplu. Derek Bird arrives in his brother David's house with his silenced 22 caliber rifle and confronts him sometime in the early hours. I can only imagine the brother would have been utterly bewildered. Suddenly his brother appears in the middle of the night, wakes him up. Bird proceeds without any warning to shoot his brother, not once or twice, but 11 times in the head and the body. This was a really, really cowardly act. He's caught his brother at the time when he's most vulnerable. It wasn't just an intention to kill. It was an intention to completely destroy. So shooting somebody 11 times, that's way more violence than you need to get the job done. So I think this does show the intensity of the resentment that Bird felt towards his brother. For him, it was a cathartic release. Remember, this isn't just a brother from his point of view that cheated him out of some inheritance, you know, late in life. This is a brother who was the person to whom he was compared for his whole life and compared unfavorably. So this was the final act of justice from his point of view. 
Having shot his twin brother dead, Derek Bird left David's house and made his way to the home of 60-year-old Kevin Commons. Just after five o'clock that morning, Derek Bird drives to the house of his solicitor, Kevin Commons, and he hangs around waiting for him for around about four hours. So for me, this is really significant because it's showing that, that Bird has a rage that is not dissipating. I think when most people are angry and they don't have an outlet for that anger, it does fizzle away and people calm down, people feel better, but not Derek Bird. Several dog walkers saw Bird outside the farmhouse belonging to Commons in the village of Frizzington. He waited there for several hours, planning his next attack. Around about 10 o'clock that morning, Kevin Commons drives up his driveway, sees Derek Bird blocking him in and probably wonders what on earth is going on. He's not given long to process that thinking until Bird comes out and shoots him twice. He must be absolutely shocked. You know, what on earth is he doing? Um, so, so he's just basically trying to survive at this point in time. He, he hasn't killed him. So he, he stumbles to his feet. He starts to, to crawl away to go back towards his house. A neighbor heard the gunshots and saw Commons trying to flee. Bird follows him, but replaces the shotgun with the rifle and proceeds to shoot him twice more, killing him at the spot. Just after 10 a.m., concerned neighbors called the police, who later discovered Kevin's body in his driveway. Bird was nowhere to be found. Bird had escaped in his car, armed with two weapons, a 12-bore sawed-off shotgun and a 22 caliber rifle. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton explains the difference between the guns. Shotguns and rifles are very different weapons. A rifle is designed to send a stable projectile a long distance. A shotgun is designed to spread pellets out. A rifle certainly can fire a small projectile that can kill you, but at short range, the mass of pellets can produce utterly devastating injuries. With greater range, less effective, but close up, a shotgun is far more deadly. Derek Bird had soullessly killed two innocent men, and the 52-year-old taxi driver was just getting started. Fifty-two-year-old Derek Bird had murdered his twin brother David and 60-year-old family solicitor Kevin Commons. Having fled the scene, Bird returned to his home village of Rora and at approximately 10.30 that morning, went to his friend's house to collect another gun he'd left there. His friend wasn't home, so Bird couldn't get the gun. He quickly left and headed to Duke Street in Whitehaven, where 43-year-old Darren Rucastle had just clocked in for his shift at the taxicab stand. Darren's father, Edward Schoons, remembers what happened the morning of the attack. I used to have breakfast with him. But I don't know why, for some reason, I stayed in bed that morning. And it just gone out when I came downstairs. If I'd got up when I normally did to have breakfast with him, he would have gone out later, and this thing would never have happened. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley details Darren's last moments. 
Darren Rewcastle was strolling across the road with a coffee in one hand and a cigarette in the other, just like it was any other normal day. And Derek Bird pulls up in his car and calls Darren over to him. He's got that control over him. He knows what he wants to do with this victim. He wants Darren to be facing him. And when he is, he shoots him in the face. I think this is a really significant murder because he feels slighted by Darren. He feels that, that this popular, affable, likeable man is somebody who has turned against him. He's somebody who has basically turned the other drivers against him. So he's externalizing all of that rage. And the fact that he shot him in the face is really significant because somebody's face is their identity. It's a sense of their personhood. So it wasn't sufficient for bird to kill him. He wanted to absolutely obliterate this individual. Minutes later, Sharon Moore received the devastating news about her brother's murder. I got a phone call at 10.35 to say that Darren had been shot. It was one of the taxi guys. He was quite close, so Darren. He just said, he said, Sharon, he said, I'm so sorry. He said, uh, Darren's been killed. And I just went, you're joking, aren't you? He went, no, he said, I'm serious. I said, when was he killed? He said, uh, a couple of minutes ago. And he might as well have hit me in the stomach with a sledgehammer because it was the worst feeling ever, ever. I couldn't get the words out. I felt really sick, I was crying. It was just, it, it was as though it was happening to somebody else. In utter disbelief, Sharon called the police. And I rang the police and I said to them, I said, can you tell me if it's Darren Rewcastle, please? And she went, um, uh, well, who's calling, please? I said, it's his sister. And she turned around and she went, well, I don't know. We haven't got everybody's names and this, that, and the other. And so she says, I'll ring you back at half past 11. His family endured a torturous wait as no one had been able to officially confirm Darren's death. With another man fatally shot, the police deployed every armed officer in the county to put an end to the rampage. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel doesn't think Bird had any particular targets in mind at this point. He was literally shooting at anything he felt like. That's what made it quite difficult for the police to stop him at once because there was no obvious pan. Bird was still at the taxi rank and he wasn't done. He opened fire on two other local taxi drivers. Donald Reed was shot in the back and Paul Wilson in the face. Incredibly, both men survived. It's no accident that Bird, who was by now clearly obsessed with revenge against his fellow taxi drivers, that he aimed at their faces. He's not seeking to wound, he's seeking to disfigure. Derek Bird's rage goes from the specific to the general. So he's targeted his brother, he's targeted his solicitor, he's targeted the men at the taxi rank. But after this point, anybody could fall victim to him. He is literally driving around the streets of Cumbria, picking off people that he comes across. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber says Bird went into a frenzy. 
What I believe happens then is he, he loses all control over the aggressive impulse. It's now just a wild, derelict impulse seizing a moment to kill. A local police officer in Whitehaven heard the shootings and spotted Bird's silver car with a shotgun pointing out of the front passenger window. As he gave chase, he saw Bird aim his shotgun at another taxi traveling with a passenger in the opposite direction. He didn't do anything to avoid capture. He was driving around killing people. The net result of that was within moments, every member of the police force was on the street looking for him. So he operated without regard the possibility that he would be caught. The officer stopped to help. Driver Terry Kennedy was shot in the hand and passenger Emma Percival was hit by bullet fragments in the neck, arm and side. Their injuries were serious, but both survived. Another police van took over the pursuit and confronted Bird, who had pulled into a driveway. The officers, however, were unarmed. When the police finally did catch up with Derek Bird, he's a very dangerous individual at this point in time. He has got nothing left to lose. So when he points his gun at the police officers, they, they quite wisely back away. And that gives him the opportunity to, to go on the run again. So they've come very close to getting him, but I think it was, was a wise decision to, to give him a wide berth at this point in time. After Bird threatened them with a shotgun, it was clear to the local police they would need backup. This is Cumbria. This is not the mean city streets. You're not expecting there to be a spree killing in this part of the world. So the, the police were perhaps not as well set up to respond to this as they could have been. So there were some issues with the radio communications. There were some issues in passing information from one service to another. So I think this spree killing really did take everybody by surprise. By now, the shocking news had broken that a lethal gunman was rabidly roaming the streets of Cumbria. Stay indoors. He's randomly shooting people on the street. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton describes how unsettling it is to witness such events in real time. With modern news, you can actually see these sort of events unfolding in real time. You don't see serial killers in real time. But to sit there as a person and watch as it's unfolding live is just unbelievable, really. At 11 a.m., the body of David Bird was discovered. The police now had three slain and four seriously injured people on their hands. Helicopters were deployed to scour the area for the crazed gunman. Meanwhile, Bird was now in the village of Egremont, where he killed his next two victims in quick succession. They were 57-year-old Susan Hughes, who was out shopping, and 71-year-old Kenneth Fishburne, a retired Sellafield nuclear plant worker, simply out walking. His MO was as simple as can be. You drive around, you see somebody, you have the slightest inclination to kill him, you kill him, and if you don't, you kill him. He virtually killed almost everyone within range of his gun and taxi as he drove around. Bird's next victim was 65-year-old Isaac Dixon, killed in a field in the village of Carlton. Between 11.05 and 11.10 a.m., Bird then drove to the village of Wilton. It was thought he was looking for members of a diving club with whom he had a falling out. Unable to find anyone, he turned his gun on an elderly couple, Jennifer and James Jackson. I suspect he's now become so dissociated from the world, he doesn't really know what he's doing. 
He knows vaguely that he's got an end game in his mind, but there's no predictability. The police urged the public to stay indoors while they tried to track down the gunman. At this point, Bird had made his way to Gosforth, where a 31-year-old part-time farmer and semi-professional rugby player was shot dead while working in a field. He wasn't seeking out people. He was shooting at people pretty much at random. Passerby, a woman on the way back from the shops, a man with his dog, a man in a field. Around 11.25 a.m., Bird drove to C-Scale, where he aimed his gun at 23-year-old estate agent Jamie Clark, who, upon being shot at, crashed his car and died. Minutes later, Bird shot at 40-year-old Harry Berger, a pub landlord who survived but lost two fingers. He's being pursued by armed response officers, helicopters, the whole panoply of a manhunt. And he's literally zigzagging across Western Cumbria. I mean, it's horrifying to say, but looking for targets. There is no rhyme nor reason for that. The only rhyme or reason is in the completely distorted reality of the empty, lonely shell of Derek Bird. At approximately 11.27 a.m., Derek Bird shot two more victims in C-scale. 64-year-old cyclist Michael Pike and 66-year-old Jane Robinson, who is just seconds away from her house. With 12 people dead and seven injured, the police enlisted the help of the Royal Air Force to stop the spree shooter. The walls were quickly closing in on Derek Bird, and a dramatic conclusion was looming. There were a couple of occasions, without question, in which Bird might have been stopped. At uh, one point, uh, a police armed response team uh, were pursuing him, following radio instructions. When he passes them in the opposite direction, they do an abrupt U-turn and follow him. But then Bird gets through some roadworks before they do. They get stuck under a bridge. He gets away. Fleeing police, Bird drove to Eskdale Valley and opened fire on six random people. He then stopped caretaker Fiona Moretta and asked if she was having a nice day before shooting her in the face. Amazingly, she survived. He drove around until literally he ran out of bullets. The only thing that stopped him was running out of bullets. By this point, Bird is pretty well aware that the net is closing in around him. He then starts to crash into vehicles. You can imagine by now his grasp of reality is distorted, to put it politely. He bangs into vehicles, he damages the tires of his taxi, eventually so badly that one deflates completely, crashes into a wall. On top of that, Bird was now running out of fuel. He'd run out of shotgun bullets, and suddenly he realized that, unlike his hyperbolic fantasies before this, life as he knew it was really over. At approximately 12.30 p.m., police found Bird's car abandoned with one of his guns inside. Bird was on foot, armed with his rifle. The public was on high alert. The police continued their manhunt, but there was still no sign of him. Then, at approximately 1.30 p.m., officers found Derek Bird's body in a wooded area near Boot. He'd shot himself. He'd engaged in the ultimate failure act. There was no reason for him to be here anymore. 
He's got nothing left to lose at this point in time and spree killers will often take their own lives and what this represents is a way of taking back control. So they are the ones who are making the final decision on when it is they die. They don't want to go to prison. They don't want to have to face the consequences of their actions. So they take that very calculated decision to kill themselves. Meanwhile, Sharon Moore was still waiting anxiously for news on her brother, Darren. So we waited and we waited. Half past 11 came and went. No sign of any phone calls. And I said, we'll just go up to Mum's. Went up to Mum's and I walked in and Mum said to me, she says, what do I owe this pleasure? And I just said to her, I says, put Sky News on. So she put the Sky News on. She just started screaming. And she went, that's our Darren, that's our Darren. And then about six o'clock, the police came to told us it was Darren. He was just left on the pavement. That's what got really got to us. They never covered the wall, never put a tent over him. When the police came, we asked them about that. And they said, we haven't got one. So that was it. Sharon realized that she had met her brother's killer before, but could never have known what was coming. A week before all that happened, I got in Derek's taxi. I'd said to our Darren, the taxi driver was really unsociable sort of thing. And he was like, oh, that's just Derek. He's harmless. I think that's the puzzling bit out of it all to, for me is when our Darren said, oh, he's harmless. I always say you never know what goes on in someone's head. With news of the Cumbria shootings all over the national press, people were still trying to make sense of why Derek Bird did what he did. A large number of people that he killed were literally people whose killing was a punishment for them being on the public streets. There's no motivation there. There's no connection there to anything in his life. It is really what, what some people would call an expressive homicide, a homicide that's taking place more to give him cathartic relief than anything to do with who the victim is and whether or not they deserve to be punished. The Queen paid tribute to the victims, and British Prime Minister David Cameron visited the scene. The small, close-knit community in Cumbria was hit hard by the killings and wanted to show their support for the victims. For Darren Rucastle's family, it was overwhelming. We booked a crematorium for 150 people, but when we got there, that was, I would say, a couple of hundred stood outside. The taxis made a procession uh, to follow the hearse. I would say just about every taxi in the area was there. People lying in the streets as we went past. <sighs> it was heartbreaking. So many people knew him and so many people liked him. It was huge, huge amount of people there. They're proud of him. To think how many people he touched, like not just in his job, but um, in general. 
the families could put their loved ones to rest, but nothing could truly explain Bird's barbaric behavior. Well, I'll be honest with you, I hated him because he took somebody special away from me. Then I'd be like, it's his family I feel sorry for because you've destroyed your own family. And, and then his, his lads were at school, at the same school as my lasses went to. And it, it, it just wrecked so many lives just because he couldn't handle his own. You can't be a normal person and shoot people several times. There's no justification for it anyway, none whatsoever, apart from losing the plot. This is an individual who's wrought complete havoc and he's never going to be brought to justice for doing this. Bird had mercilessly targeted anyone he felt had wronged him or anyone who stood in his way. In less than 24 hours, he murdered 12 innocent people, including his twin brother, and injured 11 others. Bird certainly never explained, what did you do that for? He left no suicide note, for example, no note of apology, no suggestion of what was in his mind when he suddenly decided to shoot all these people. Anyone who is prepared to take lives at random or apparently at random for no obvious reason without any explanation to me is genuinely evil. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer. On April 1st, 1990, Arizona State Trooper Michael Miller pulled to the side of Interstate 10 in Casa Grande to inspect a parked truck. When he peered through the windows, he couldn't believe what he saw. The face of a petrified woman, chained up like an animal. He immediately handcuffed the truck driver and put him into his patrol car. I think he was probably thinking, how am I going to get out of this one? What do I do now? She went back to bed. Invite me back. I think that's about as far as I've ever gone.